The world headlines. The walls are closing in. Trump reels from week of political setbacks Donald Trump. The last time Donald Trump heard such hammer blows, they were from renovations at Mar-a-Lago that displeased the former president. But not even that sound would have left his ears ringing like last week's avalanche of bad news that some believe nudged a criminal indictment one step closer. No single week in the year since Trump left the White House has been as dramatic, or for him as potentially catastrophic, as the one just passed. It included a rebuke from the Supreme Court over documents related to the January 6th insurrection which Trump incited, news that the Congressional Committee investigating the riot was closing in on Trump's inner circle, evidence from New York's Attorney General of alleged tax fraud, and, perhaps most damaging of all, a request from a Georgia prosecutor for a grand jury in her investigation of Trump's attempt to overturn the 2020 election. The week ended with the leaking of a document showing that Trump at least pondered harnessing the military in his attempts to overturn Joe Biden's victory. It all left the former president with plenty to ponder. He's Teflon Don, he said he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and survive it, his supporters are going to support him no matter what, but I'm starting to think more and more that the walls are closing in on this guy," said Kimberly Welly, a respected legal analyst and professor of law at the University of Baltimore. The most immediate thing is the grand jury in Georgia because there's audio of him trying to get Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to find votes. Under Georgia election laws, as I read them that is potentially a crime. The looming question is whether Trump will be indicted along with 11 others so far for seditious conspiracy over the January 6th Capitol attack. To me that's the biggest turn of events, the Justice Department believes they have evidence beyond a reasonable doubt of an agreement, a meeting of minds to overturn a legitimate. Fed tries to match economic risks against markets rush to tighten. Washington, January 24, the Federal Reserve may not raise interest rates until March, but officials' tougher language about inflation is already kicking in, with borrowing costs rising for everyone from home buyers to the federal government and stock markets kicking off the year deep in the red. The pace of that adjustment now poses an unexpectedly urgent question for U.S. central bank officials at their latest two-day policy meeting this week. Are financial markets tightening too fast for what the Fed intends in its inflation battle, or is the Fed the one underestimating what will ultimately be needed to slow the pace of price increases? In their most recent projections, issued in December, policymakers said they expected as many as three-quarter percentage point rate increases this year, with more in the cards in 2023 and 2024. But those projections and never raised the Fed's benchmark overnight interest rate above the neutral level that would actually restrict the economy. Yet inflation still falls, a best-of-all-worlds outcome some analysts see as unrealistic. The U.S. is facing the highest inflation since 1982, and there is compelling evidence that a good chunk of it will persist. The Fed has never responded this slowly, and even today is signaling a benign hiking cycle, wrote Ethan Harris, the head of global research at Bank of America. The biggest near-term risk is right in front of us, that the Fed is seriously behind the curve and has to get serious. That could mean as many as six-quarter percentage point rate increases this year, he said, and a fast push to a 3% federal funds rate from the current level near zero. That'd be the highest policy rate since the Fed started slashing borrowing costs at the start of the 2007-2009 financial crisis, and enough, according to current estimates, to actually curb economic growth, employment and inflation. COVID-19 can wreak havoc on your body. So will it cause health issues decades down the road? 
The illness once dubbed a pneumonia of unknown cause, in the early days of 2020 has revealed itself to be something far more strange. Two years into this pandemic, we now know COVID-19 can lead to a dizzying array of symptoms, from heart inflammation to brain fog to the loss of sense of smell or taste. Some people's toes turn red, others go on to develop diabetes. SARS-CoV-2 also impacts various organs and sometimes causes long-lasting breathing problems, fatigue or chronic kidney impairment. Time and research have shown that the virus has quite a knack for wreaking havoc on the human body under the right conditions. So what will that mean for the long-term health of millions of people who've been infected, months, years, or even decades down the road? There are some known unknowns, like what will the rate and duration of long COVID be for different individuals, said Matthew Miller, an associate professor with McMaster University's Immunology Research Center in Hamilton. And then there are unknown unknowns, like what might happen 30 or 50 years from now. Infections linked to diabetes, neurological issues. SARS-CoV-2's ability to spread throughout the body is largely tied to the spike proteins on its surface, which bind to ACE2, a protein on the surface of various types of human cells, like a key into a lock. That means the virus can reach far beyond the respiratory tract, causing inflammation wherever it spreads. We've already shown this virus, even in the acute stage, does have impact on the brain and on our central organs like the heart and pancreas and areas where other viral infections have caused longer-term inflammatory changes that have led to chronic disease, said Dr. Corey Newdorf, the public health, health systems and social policy impacts pillar co-lead for COVID-19, a team of Canadian researchers who banded together during the pandemic. U.S. vows swift, severe and united response if Russia invades Ukraine. The U.S. and its allies will deliver a swift, severe and united response if Russia invades Ukraine, the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, warned on Sunday amid rising tensions. The top U.S. diplomats' comments came as Russia continued its military buildup on the Ukraine border and Britain said it had exposed evidence of a plot by Vladimir Putin to install a pro-Moscow government in Kiev. The Russian president, Blinken said, must choose between the preferred path of diplomacy and dialogue or Russian aggression and massive consequences. The US, NATO, and Europe stood ready to deal with any eventuality, he said. We've been very clear that if there is any further Russian aggression in terms of sending Russian forces into Ukraine, there will be a swift, severe and united response from the United States and Europe, Blinken told CBS's Face the Nation, echoing the message he said he delivered to the Russian Foreign Minister, Sergei Lavrov, in frank and substantive talks in Geneva last week. We've been equally clear that Russia engages in other tactics short of sending forces into Ukraine, or other countries, hybrid actions, cyber attacks, efforts to bring the government down. There, too, I'm confident based on the many consultations I've had with European allies and partners that there will be a swift, calibrated, and also united response. Blinken would not say if that response included committing US forces, but told CNN's State of the Union the alliance was looking at very practical and important measures, including military options. One thing we've been clear about, besides the massive economic, financial consequences that would befall Russia if it makes further aggression against Ukraine, is the ongoing, continued buildup of defense capacity in Ukraine and, equally, continuing to build up NATO's defensive capabilities, including on the so-called eastern flank, the countries near Russia. New U.S. diplomatic complex in Thailand aimed at China and Myanmar. 
No one doubts that the American community in the northern Thai city of Chiang Mai, which consists mostly of NGO workers, missionaries, and retirees, needs consular services. But could that be the only reason why a massive, new United States, U.S., consulate general is under construction at a cost of 300 million U.S. dollars? Due to be opened in 2023, the buildings of the diplomatic mission will sprawl over no less than 6.6 acres, or 26,709 square meters, of land in a business park on the outskirts of Chiang Mai. In a colorful, online brochure, the U.S. Consul General in Chiang Mai describes the project as a concrete sign of our long-term commitment to the people of Northern Thailand and the future of our partnership and the text goes on to state that the U.S. Consulate General is dedicated to serving the local American community or those wishing to travel to the United States. While all of that may be accurate, Michael Vitikiotis, a Singapore-based British analyst, argues in an op-ed piece for Nikkei Asia on January 7 that Beijing sees the construction of a such a huge diplomatic complex only 500 kilometers from the Chinese border and even closer to Myanmar and Laos, as an attempt to reinforce existing U.S. intelligence gathering capacity in northern Thailand. Covert U.S. activity of that kind would fit into the broader picture of geostrategic rivalries in the region. The rise of China as an economic and political superpower in Asia has been met by the formation of new alliances in the region. The Army's universal vaccine aims to end all COVID pandemics. The rise of the COVID-19 Omicron variant and resultant spike in COVID-19 cases have redefined the meaning of fully vaccinated. Many experts are now talking about yearly COVID booster shots or variant-specific vaccines. But what if there were a universal coronavirus vaccine that protected against Omicron and all new COVID-19 variants? The U.S. Army now has that goal in sight. The Army recently announced that its pan-coronavirus vaccine, the spike ferritin nanoparticle COVID-19 vaccine, aka SPFN, had completed phase one of human trials with positive results. Dr. Kayvon Majorad, Director of Infectious Diseases at Walter Reed Army Institute of Research WRR, and co-inventor of SPFN, told Defense One, we're testing our vaccine against all the different variants, including Omicron, the strain causing breakthrough infections even in people who have received booster shots. SPFN still needs to undergo Phase 2 and 3 human trials, though, to test its efficacy and safety in comparison to current treatments, Majorad said. We'll share what we know about pancoronavirus vaccines and the Army's COVID-19 vaccine, including how it works and when it could become available. Gordon Robinson abolished the nonsensical minister without portfolio. The recent shuffling of an old deck of political cards ended up with yet another new ministry. Cabinet now consists of the PM, 15 ministers with named portfolio titles, and 7 ministers without portfolio. What a lot of ministers to run a country of 3 million people. Jamaica now has a cabinet of 23. In addition, there are seven state ministers. Clearly, Jamaica is a very wealthy nation that can afford 23 ministerial salaries and perks plus seven more junior ministers emoluments, but in a pandemic, can't pay healthcare workers overtime or gratuity for months or years. The UK, with a population of 53 plus million, has a cabinet of 22. But this includes three secretaries of state for Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland, and because the UK has no written constitution, the leader of the House of Lords and an attorney general. When boiled down to gravy, this means a cabinet of only 17 specialist ministers. 
The USA cabinet contains nine secretaries, ministers, nominated by the president and approved by the Senate, 15 department heads, and the vice president. Although the president can attend cabinet meetings, he is not officially a cabinet member. So depending on how you count, USA's cabinet comprises 9, 24, 25 or 26 members to manage a federation of 50 states containing 330000000 plus people. I know readers, brainwashed to worship politics over all else, expect me to critique the ministerial appointments. The bad news is, I don't care. Certainly, this Ministry of Legal Affairs, will it settle disputes I may have with my lawyer girlfriend, is a better option than the Ministry of Justice, the abolition of which I've long advocated. But my interest isn't in political personalities but that Jamaica has long needed a Ministry of Legislative Issues, to include constitutional reform, while transferring the administration of the courts to the office of the Chief Justice that could absorb many public servants. Slow journey to justice, trial of three ex-police officers involved in George Floyd murder begins. The bitter Arctic blast, which had Minnesota temperatures below zero F last week, didn't stop protesters from hosting a rally as the three lesser-known police officers involved in the killing of George Floyd faced their turn in the courtroom. A caravan of two dozen cars occupied the length of the block outside the courthouse in the state capital St. Paul last week, as jury selection began in the federal civil rights trial of Tu Tao, J. Alexander Quang and Thomas Lane. Opening statements are expected on Monday, in the second trial of the closely watched process of legal accountability after white former Minneapolis officer Derek Chauvin was convicted of murdering Floyd, a 46-year-old black man, and admitted violating his civil rights in May 2020, sparking the largest racial reckoning in America's recent history. The day that George Floyd was killed, in addition to Derek Chauvin as the officer that took George Floyd's life, there were three other human beings that were there. They wore badges and guns, too. They were officers, too, local activist Tashira Garraway told the bundled-up protesters standing in a tight circle outside of their cars. She added, not one of the four officers that was there had compassion and empathy enough to intervene. The twin cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul are now braced for the latest trial. Today is another milestone in the long, slow journey to justice for George Floyd, Ben Crump, the civil rights lawyer who represented his relatives, said in a statement, this trial will be another painful experience for the Floyd family, who must once more relive his grueling death in excruciating detail. It took only one day for 12 jurors and six alternates to be seated in the three former officers' federal trial inside the heavily barricaded courthouse. Boudreaux talks reaching 1,000 NHL games, Canucks and sit down with NHL.com. NHL.com's Q&A feature called, Sitting Down With, runs each Sunday. We talk to key figures in the game, gaining insight into their lives on and off the ice. This edition features Vancouver Canucks coach Bruce Boudreaux. Bruce Boudreaux coached his 1,000th NHL game Sunday when the Vancouver Canucks posted the St. Louis Blues on Sunday. The 67-year-old became the 29th coach to reach the milestone and had been pondering what it would mean to him. I think if anything it means acceptance, that I'm an NHL coach, Boudreaux said. I don't know if makes any sense to anybody else, but I mean I was 33 years basically in the minors, as a player and a coach. So to get this 1,000th game after not being in the NHL until you're 53, I think is pretty cool that I finally feel like I'm accepted as a guy that's been in the NHL for a while. 
Goudreau is 577-305-117 in 14 NHL seasons with the Washington Capitals, 2007-2011, Anaheim Ducks, 2011-2016, Minnesota Wild, 2016-2020, and the Canucks, who hired him December 5 to replace Travis Green. Vancouver, 18-18-4, is 10-3-2 since Boudreaux became coach, including wins in its first seven games. Boudreaux is trying to duplicate what he did in his first NHL job with the Capitals. Washington was 6-14-1 when he was promoted from Hershey of American Hockey League to replace Glenn Hanlon as coach November 22, 2007. The Capitals were 37-17-7 during the remainder of the season to finish first in the Southeast Division and qualify for the Stanley Cup playoffs. Boudreaux won the Jack Adams Award voted as NHL Coach of the Year that season. NHL.com caught up with Boudreaux and talked about his memories from his first 999 NHL games, trying to turn around the Canucks, his time between coaching gigs and Alex Ovechkin. What memories from your time coaching in the NHL stand out? I think when we won the last game my first year, with Washington, to finally make the playoffs. We had to win 12 out of the last 13 and we had to win the last 7 games. African Cup of Nations live stream and how to watch AFCON 2022 for free, fixtures, last 16, Cameroon vs Comoros. The African Cup of Nations, Africa's top football tournament, is approaching the knockout stages. Nigeria's Super Eagles crashed out to Tunisia, leaving Egypt as the tournament favorites. Today, it's Guinea vs Gambia at 4 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, then hosts Cameroon take on Giant Killing Comoros at 7 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time. UK viewers can watch 10 games, including the final, free on BBC iPlayer. Make sure you know how to watch an African Cup of Nations live stream from anywhere using a VPN. The 33rd African Cup of Nations launched in the Cameroonian capital of Yaoundé. The first major football event of 2022 will see 24 teams bid for AFCON glory, a far cry from the inaugural cup in 1957, when a mere three teams took part. Plenty of Premier League stars will be in action this year, including Arsenal's Thomas Partey, Ghana, and Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, Gabon, Chelsea's Edouard Mendy, Senegal, Liverpool's Mo Sulla, Egypt, Manchester United's Eric Bailey, Ivory Coast, and Tottenham Hotspur's Pate Matar Sar, Senegal. There was talk of further postponing what is actually AFCON 2021 due to an outbreak in Cameroon, but the president of the Confederation of African Football, CAF, Patrice Motsip, has said that the 2022 Africa Cup of Nations will go ahead as planned. Audiences will be capped at 80% of capacity for games involving hosts Cameroon, and 60% for all other matches. Ready to watch the greatest African footballers on the planet? Lucky Aussie fans can watch every game on BN Sports, which you can also find on KO. Make sure you know how to watch the 2022 African Cup of Nations from anywhere. How Mammoth Mountain Helps Develop World-Class Snowboarders Benjamin Wisner wanted to cover the slope-style course in Mammoth Mountain's famed main park with what looked like the world's largest slip and slide. Only one question stood in his way. Is it going to be cool? The Mammoth Mountain chief financial officer asked. A single-word answer in the affirmative was all it took to secure more than $100,000 for the revolutionary airbag. That's Mammoth, you know, Wisner said. We do what no one else is doing.
In a sport obsessed with pushing limits, the resort's forward-thinking culture and idyllic environment have produced some of Team USA's best snowboarders and free skiers through its celebrated Mammoth Mountain Ski and Snowboard Team. The club directed by Wisner has four alumni on the Olympic snowboarding team in Beijing with reigning gold medalist Chloe Kim, half-pipe teammates Maddie Mastro and Tessa Maud and slope-style snowboarder Dusty Henriksen. I owe my whole career to the Mammoth team, said Maud, who will make her Olympic debut. I learned everything I know from them. Maud, 18, was named to the Team USA rookie squad last year, giving her access to the national team coaches, but she wanted additional support from the club and coach that shaped her career from age 7. So, she returned to Mammoth and Wisner for her Olympic qualifying run. His ability to connect with an athlete is unlike anyone else, Maud said of Wisner, who coaches Mammoth's elite halfpipe athletes and helps with the Team USA rookie halfpipe team in addition to his role as the Mammoth team's director. I've worked with so many coaches over the years and he just has such a good way of helping us and supporting us and putting his heart and soul into his athletes. Was Larry Summers right all along? There's a story that progressives like to tell about Larry Summers. The doyen of establishment economics is dining out with a populist politician. The two have made it through the meal with minimal awkwardness, their ideological tensions eased by booze and food, when Summers leans back in his chair and offers his left-wing foil a hard-won insight, there are two kinds of political actors in this world. Insiders and outsiders. Outsiders are free to speak their truth, Summers explains. But the price of such freedom is irrelevance in the halls of power. Insiders, by contrast, have a seat at the table where history is made. But to keep those seats, they must take care not to criticize other insiders. So, Summers asks his dining companion, which are you? The anecdote has an apocryphal air. It makes Summers sound like the one-dimensional villain of a third-rate Sorkin script. Yet in their respective memoirs, Senator Elizabeth Warren and former Greek finance minister Yanis Varoufakis each claimed that Summers subjected them to such an after-dinner lecture and advised them to take the inside track. If the story is true, then Summers has ceased taking his own advice. These days, the former Treasury Secretary is the outsider, or at least, he's acting like one. Back in March 2021, Blue America was in high spirits. Thanks to their improbable sweep of Georgia's special Senate elections, Democrats found themselves in full control of the federal government. They would waste little time in using it, with President Biden swiftly unveiling a $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill known as the American Rescue Plan. The package won plaudits from all corners of his Big Tent coalition. Everyone from the conservative columnist David Brooks to the socialist economist J.W. Mason hailed the bill as a landmark. Americans sour on nation's direction in new NBC News poll. Washington, overwhelming majorities of Americans believe the country is headed in the wrong direction, that their household income is falling behind the cost of living, that political polarization will only continue and that there's a real threat to democracy and majority rule. What's more, the nation's top politicians and political parties are more unpopular than popular, and interest in the upcoming November midterms is down, not up. And when Americans were asked to describe where they believe America is today, the top answers were, downhill, divisive, negative, struggling, lost, and bad. Those are the grim findings of a new national NBC News poll conducted less than 10 months before the midterm elections, when control of the U.S. Senate 
U.S. House, and governor's mansions across the country will be up for grabs. Downhill, divided, doubting democracy, falling behind, and tuning out, this is how Americans are feeling as they're heading into 2022, said Democratic pollster Jeff Horwood of Heart Research Associates, who conducted this survey with Republican pollster Bill McInturf of Public Opinion Strategies. That pessimism and gloom isn't helping the party in control of the White House and Congress. While the poll shows Democrats enjoying a narrow one-point advantage over Republicans as the party that should control Congress, it also shows President Joe Biden's job approval rating remaining in the low 40s, Republicans holding a double-digit edge in enthusiasm and key Democratic groups losing interest in the upcoming election. There is nothing but flashing red flights and warning signs for Democrats, said McInturf, the Republican pollster. Bad news for the party in power. According to the poll, 72% of Americans say the country is headed in the wrong direction, essentially unchanged from the 71% who held this view in October's NBC News poll. It marks just the sixth time in the poll's history when 70% or more have said the nation. Russia rejects UK claim of trying to replace Ukraine leader. Moscow, Russia's foreign ministry on Sunday rejected a British claim that the Kremlin is seeking to replace Ukraine's government with a pro-Moscow administration, and that former Ukrainian lawmaker Yevgeny Nureyev is a potential candidate. Britain's foreign office on Saturday also named several other Ukrainian politicians it said had links with Russian intelligence services, along with Nureyev who is the leader of a small party that has no seats in parliament. Those politicians include Mykola Azarov, a former prime minister under Viktor Yanukovych, the Ukrainian president ousted in a 2014 uprising, and Yanukovych as former chief of staff, Andriy Kleyev. Some of these have contact with Russian intelligence officers currently involved in the planning for an attack on Ukraine, the foreign office said. Nureyev told the Associated Press via Skype that the British claim looks ridiculous and funny, and that he has been denied entry to Russia since 2018 on the grounds of being a threat to Russian security. He said that sanction was imposed in the wake of a conflict with Viktor Medvedchuk, Ukraine's most prominent pro-Russia politician and a friend of Russian President Vladimir Putin. Nureyev's Nashi party, whose name echoes the former Russian youth movement that supported Putin, is regarded as sympathetic to Russia, but Nureyev on Sunday pushed back on characterizing it as pro-Russia. The time of pro-Western and pro-Russian politicians in Ukraine is gone forever, he said in a Facebook post. Everything that does not support the pro-Western path of development of Ukraine is automatically pro-Russian, Nureyev told the AP. He also said he supports Ukraine having neutral status and believes that striving for NATO is tantamount to continuing the war. Ukrainian forces and Russia-backed separatists have been fighting in the country's east since 2014, a conflict that has killed more than 14,000. Race is factor in COVID treatment. Some conservatives are taking aim at policies that allow doctors to consider race as a risk factor when allocating scarce COVID-19 treatments, saying the protocols discriminate against white people. The wave of infections brought on by the Omicron variant and a shortage of treatments have focused attention on the policies. Medical experts say the opposition is misleading. Health officials have long said there is a strong case for considering race as one of many risk factors in treatment decisions. And there is no evidence that race alone is being used to decide who gets medicine. The issue came to the forefront last week after Fox News host Tucker Carlson, former President Donald Trump and Republican Senator Marco Rubio jumped on the policies. 
In recent days, conservative law firms have pressured a Missouri-based healthcare system, Minnesota and Utah to drop their protocols and sued New York State over allocation guidelines or scoring systems that include race as a risk factor. J.P. Leiter, a senior fellow in the Division of Health Policy and Management at the University of Minnesota who helped develop that state's allocation criteria, noted that prioritization has been going on for some time because there aren't enough treatments to go around. You have to pick who comes first, Leiter said. The problem is we have extremely conclusive evidence that minorities across the United States are having worse COVID outcomes compared to white folks. Sometimes it's acceptable to consider things like race and ethnicity when making decisions about when resources get allocated at a societal level. Since the pandemic began, healthcare systems and states have been grappling with how to best distribute treatments. The problem has only grown worse as the Omicron variant has packed hospitals with COVID-19 patients. Considerable evidence suggests that COVID-19 has hit certain racial and ethnic groups harder than whites. Super Bowl 56. Penn State will be represented in the Super Bowl for the 51st time. Penn State's streak of having an alumnus in every Super Bowl, except for five, of course, will continue in Super Bowl 56. For former Nittany Lions, five, if you count Los Angeles Rams linebacker Troy Reader, are on the rosters for Sunday's NFL Championship games. And all four will be in Los Angeles for the NFC Championship game between the Rams and the San Francisco 49ers. That will guarantee Penn State representation in Super Bowl 56, scheduled for February 13th in Los Angeles. So let's refresh last year's Penn State graphic, shall we? Penn Staters delivered some highlights in the NFC Divisional Games last weekend. San Francisco kicker Robbie Gould, the longest-tenured Nittany Lion in the NFL, made the game-winning field goal as time expired, lifting the 49ers over Green Bay 13-10. Gould, in his 17th NFL season, continued quite a playoff streak. He has never missed a postseason kick, going 20-20 on field goal attempts and 32-32 on extra points. Meanwhile, Los Angeles safety Nick Scott, normally a special teams player, made his second postseason start because of injuries in the Rams' secondary. He delivered another huge defensive play, intercepting a Tom Brady pass late in the first half. Penn Staters, including non-football players, have won 62 Super Bowl rings, including two last season, Tampa's Chris Godwin and Donovan Smith. Overall, Penn State ranks fifth among college programs with 43 Super Bowl champs.